HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The Grape Nation is brought to you by Wine Access. Here's a great way to discover and drink the best wines expertly curated for you. Go to wineaccess.com slash grapenation for more info. This week on Meet and 3, it's the final episode of our series on global trade. We're thinking futuristically, from China's ambitious plans for a new Silk Road to the future of borders and automation. If you're a banana, you know, it's easy to cross the border. But if you're a person who's trying to follow the jobs, uh, it's a lot more difficult, if not impossible, to do so in an authorized and safe fashion. They love food trucks and they love growing your own food because these things are not dependent on essentially government systems. So there's a whole politics to pretzels on the dark web. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Wine Journey. Our guest is Nate Reddy. We'll talk to Nate about wine, his ecological agenda, the Columbia River Gorge, how you farm, and more. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Great Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Nate Reddy is a former master sommelier. He worked the floor at Bobby Stuckey's Frasca in Boulder and the French Laundry in Yonville. He did a little stint at Ronco del Niemes in Italy before heading north to find a small working farm in the Hood River, Oregon region with his partner, China. Hayu Farm is a biodiverse environment where Nate grows over 100 grape varietals, fruits, vegetables, raises animals, and he is the true permaculturist. Welcome back to the Great Nation, Nate. Good to be here. You know, this for the month of February, I've been focusing on uh, West Coast winemakers. One of the reasons are we're still at home taping. So, you know, usually we have guests in the studio or birders in Brooklyn, but it's a good chance for me. So we've spoken to Martha Stuman, Maggie Harrison, Keegan Pascualacqua, and we end the month with you, Nate Reddy, which I did on purpose because you're the last guy I want to hear from. Um so we're talking to Nate via Zencaster, which is our audio app. Where are you right now, Nate? <laughs> I'm in I'm in an apartment above our barn. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So, so you're on the you're on the farm. Yeah, property. I'm on the farm. There's like a turn. Okay. Right. Well, I thought maybe you're traveling yeah. or out of town. No, no, no. I mean, I haven't left. I've been to Portland twice since March, and otherwise, I haven't. Holy cow! Been on the, farm the whole time, yeah. Well, the, the other crazy thing is, and talk talk to me about this for a minute, you had some unbelievable snow recently, right? Like how often do you get snows like that? And did it have any effect, you know, on the farm and everything you're doing there? Um, no. So, I mean, we actually get a lot of snow here. And so this was not, oh, you do? This was not unusual. It was unusual for the Willamette. It was a lot of snow. 
but because we're close to the mountain, um, we pretty frequently have um, snows in February and March. And so this was norm- not unusual. You know what? I guess watching too much news, you know, you see like <laughs> Portland, Portland and Seattle, you know, they didn't get as much of that. But you're in, um, which is a good segue because give our listeners an idea of you know, where you are. I mean, just tell me the Hood River region of Oregon, you know, the Columbia River Gorge, which is, you know, now uh, AVA for wine, you know, just visually, just, you know, tell, tell people, you know, where you wound up, where you situated yourself. We're, so the Columbia River Gorge is an hour east of Portland. And so you basically had, um, you know, east on a sea level passageway along the banks of the Columbia. And it takes you into the heart of the Cascades where you pass through a rainforest. Um, And that's sort of like when you're in the heart of the Cascades is about 120 inches of rainfall a year. And then as you arrive, you begin to lose rain as you, you know, as you head east, you're losing about an inch per mile. And as you emerge, you know, from the Cascades, you you enter the gorge um and you sort of enter the cooler side of the gorge first where um you know it's about 45 to 50 inches of rain a year similar climates the willamette in terms of rainfall but it's a much more sort of alpine feeling and then as you about 40 miles you reach the desert so the gorge is famous from going from basically rainforest to desert in 40 miles and you have you encounter sort of any climate you can imagine. Um, and the Hood River Valley itself is, so within the gorge, there are all these very specific eco niches and the Hood River Valley is one of those. And the Hood River Valley is an alpine valley at the base of Mount Hood. Um, and, you know, a beautiful river runs through and there's east and west hillsides, but it very much resembles the kind of fruit growing valley that you would encounter um, in Northern Italy or Austria, um, the base of the Alps. Right. You know, I'm, I'm confused for a second. I mean, I know you're in Oregon, um, but you and I had a chance to sit down at Taste Washington, not last year because the whole year was blown off, but the year before. Um, if you're in Oregon, why were you at the Washington thing? Are you making wine in both states? Yeah, so the so the gorge is a is a bi-state AVA, and so the Columbia River forms the border between Washington and Oregon, and so half of the gorge is in Washington, half is in Oregon. We farm sites on both sides of the river, and so half the wines we make are from Washington, and half are from Oregon. Um, that, that's what I thought. Now, do you own the property on the Washington side, or no, we lease them? So you we, lease, okay. We, we just own the one property in Hood River, which is a 30-acre farm with um, 14 acres of vines. And then we lease an additional um, about 20 acres or so of vines over three other sites. And I got it. That, I, I was hoping, you know, I kind of knew that, but I wanted to make sure because, you know, when I said I'm doing West Coast winemakers in February, I wanted to represent Napa. Not Napa, hardly Napa. California, um, Oregon, and Washington, and you check you check the box for me for Washington. Um, before we get into everything, I just want to get your take on a few things. I guess there's a when and why. You know, when did you decide to get out of resp- restaurants and hospitality, um, and ultimately wind up at you know how you farm. I mean, when was that? How long were you thinking about it? You know, you obviously pulled the trigger and, you know, made the trip. But just give me a little pathway to that. Yeah, it was in, in 2006. And I was I was working at Frosca at the time. Um, and I loved it. It was an, like an amazing experience. And it wasn't, I would say that leaving the restaurant wasn't intentional. It wasn't something I set out to do. I... At that time, I had just passed the Master Sommelier examination and 
And if I was in being sort of brutally honest with myself at that moment, um, I really wasn't a master of anything. Um, I was really <laughs> like just, I mean, I was only 28 years old, right? I was a kid. That's funny. And really at the beginning, really at the beginning of my learning process. And, and I realized, well, here I am. I'm a master sommelier. I'm supposed to know all this stuff about wine and all my knowledge about winemaking is from books. Like I really actually have no idea. Um, but I don't want to break your flow of thought, but did it, was it the typical, you know, getting there was preceded by, you know, two, three hours a night, you know, reading everything, tastings, you know, at Fraskin with friends. Was all of that, you know, a lead up for you or you didn't get into it that much? What do you mean? Like this, this. Well, you know, when you see the Psalm movies and you talk to Psalms, they're, they're six years of their lives were consumed. So my path to that was very different. And I was just genuinely curious about what was happening. And so it never felt, it was just something that happened during the course of working at wine shops and at restaurants. And just, it was sort of spontaneously sort of researching things I was interested in. It didn't feel like work and it didn't feel like school or study. Um, it was just part of being in that culture. It was just what you did. Um, but it was quite like fluid and natural. It wasn't, um, but I did realize that in that moment that, that I really didn't, that I devoted my life, you know, sort of <laughs> not intentionally, I devoted my life to this subject or to this phenomenon. And I didn't really understand how it happened. Like viscerally. It was there. You looked up and it was there. And everything yeah. you had done got you there. Right. It's like, well, this is something I'm doing. Like I should really. And so in that moment, I guess I became more and more aware of that I set out to explore winemaking. Not um, I didn't intend to leave the restaurant to do that. Um, but it was just more part, okay, I should have this experience so that I could, you know, understand this and learn this and um, the experience of making wine, the experience of making wine and get a right. more, you know, so that's when you started happen. thinking forward about, you know, maybe a property or going somewhere. Yeah. And then that came much later. I mean, I think I first just started like, let's work a harvest and see what that's about. And then as that, as that began and I began to do it, it was like, Oh wow. Like this is something I, really like and really enjoy. Um, and then it was in Italy at Rocco Niemitz, the agronomist there, a man named Andrea Pitana. You know, he would take me every weekend. He would take me somewhere to sort of show me something about, about the winemaking or the farming process. So he'd visit ancient cellars that were made of stone where he could sort of show me how, you know, what are the ideal environments for like yeast to accrue in an environment or, and he'd take me to different farms where people were yeah, doing interesting things. And he impressed upon me that he basically told me at one point, you should like stop thinking about the winemaking and, and learn first how to farm. And not farm grapes, like just farm more broadly. Um, and so you'd direct me to read like Columella and Varro and all these ancient Roman treatises on farming and to really sort of build a base from the ground up in that way. And so that's really what, personally, that's what led me to the farming was. Um, so then, So then there was a, I wouldn't say a shift, but, you know, like you said, you were at Frasca and you were intrigued by wine and, you know, maybe you'd make it because it would fulfill your understanding. But being in Italy pushed you to wine, but also how important farming is, right? I mean, that was really where that plant was seeded. That seed was planted. Yeah, and that's where, yeah, absolutely. Like, that's where I, for the first time, I had a really... Um, intense and inspirational experience of being in the field with plants, with animals and having that being, you know, part of my daily life. Um, and yeah, that's where all that stuff. When, when the time came, you know, to start looking at properties, 
you were setting out to do more than just make wine, true? Correct. Yeah, we were mostly, um, we were looking, and this China and I, we were looking for a property um, really as like a, for, as a learning experience. Like, I think like at that point, I think we sort of understood that that maybe it would be easy, easiest for us to learn if we just sort of got our hands dirty on a small property and we're just able to experiment and play around with things. We had staged on, you know, a bunch of other sort of local farms and reading a lot and we just wanted to play around with stuff. And, um, and so that's what sort of led to the search, you know, for, you know, um, China's sensibilities are very similar to yours, right? I mean, the two of you, you were not looking at each other, you know, with much disagreement. You were ready to jump in this together, right? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, I mean, it definitely and Maybe I made it sound more perfect than it is, but. China had much more experience. She grew up in a, on a farm, a biodynamic farm in Vermont. This was much more part of her, her life experience than mine. Didn't she grow up on an organic farm? Biodynamic. So her Biodynamic, right, which is, you yeah. know, crazy. Her father had had a primitive tool company in Vermont in the 70s and had written a lot of books about, like, a manual on how to use the scythe. And he was very interested in these sorts of things. And so she grew up sort of surrounded by that. Right. So that... So that was a good partner to go in. So how long does it take you to look around and step on a high farm and realize this is it? We moved to Oregon in the fall of 2008. And a couple of years after Frasca. Right. And we purchased the property in Hood River, seven acres on what is the west side of the farm now um, in the fall of 2010, August of 2010. And you're living there full time by the beginning of 2011. So we're, we're going on our 10th year anniversary. Um, so I, you know, I think since you got there and, you know, you really kind of dug in literally and rhetorically, um, you have, or you said an ecological agenda, right? I mean, what, what, what was, what is, and what continues to be your grand vision, you know, for how you farm? It gets, I think it's really, it's interesting. We're really just at the beginning of our process. I think that, you know, people can have ideas of places that are, you know, that are very fixed. Um, and, and I think it's easy to look at, it's disorienting. I think it's really confusing sometimes to understand, well, sort of the sense of time when we're dealing with, with sort of wine producers. I mean, it's pretty common, you know, we'll tell us, we'll hear a story about a producer and, and a certain period of time gets, gets sort of fixed in our imagination. So I'll like sometimes experience this with regard, like, like someone like Belouard, like sort of like, Belloir would be described as, you know, sort of this young man doing sort of radical things, you know, in the Savoie. And then when you actually go there, you know, many years have passed since that story was told for the first time. He's not a young man anymore. You know, he's like, <laughs> not he's old, but I mean, um, the same thing at Puzalot, right? Like, you know, I think that, that story will get told from this lens that is, you know, 15 years ago, time has passed. Um and and I think with us, like like people, I think sometimes tend to think of our project as being something that's fully realized. And it's true that a, like a lot of things have happened and maybe faster than we expected. But we're very much at the beginning of our process. We only released our first wines in two thousand seventeen. Um, Right. That's not that long ago. Not that long ago. Right. Yeah, like, right. You have to be in there 10 years. Just at the, just at the outset. And I would say like from a, um, you know, from the permaculture standpoint, we've, and from the 
development of like sort of farming practices, there's a lot that we've learned, um, but there's still so much that lies in front of us. And can uh, you do me a favor? Um, and I hesitate to ask this sometimes because, you know, when you have a guy on a show that makes natural wines, you know, the question is, hey, can you define natural wine? Um, which is so, you know, crazy now. My, my question to you is because I think less people know about it. I just need you, you know, biodiversity and practicing permaculture is important. Can you just sort of tell people, you know, in your interpretation, you know, what permaculture is? I mean, people think of it as a vineyard, and, and you're more than a vineyard, your farm is, you know, a row of vines and all of that. You, your environment is way more different. It's a permaculture environment. Just get into that for me, you know, for me, so people can imagine you know, where you're at. Yeah. I mean, I would say with all these things that they're tools, right? Like for us, they're not belief systems, you know, per se, they certainly influence how we understand the world and see things. And, um, and permaculture is a, you know, it's a philosophy of design, um, that can be applied to anything, but is, you know, but is, you know, often applied to sort of, you know, farms and gardens and growing systems. Um, and it's, and permaculture appeals to me, appeals to me and, the, and the best way for me to describe it is that it's this, it's a system of design in which you try to take into account the needs and the attributes of sort of everything that exists in a place. So the needs of all the life forms and how they relate to the climate and the soil and culture. And, and so it's not this, I think ideally it's not a, a system that's like human centric in its perspective, um, at least not in the way that we, well, certainly not a monoculture, um, but it's also not, you're also not manipulating what's the best way to sort of say this you're you're looking at sort of like all the creatures and all the just all the attributes in the system and you're trying to ask yourself you constantly ask yourself the question like how how can we arrange these things and how can we aid and support these things so that so that you get the best like total result from, I mean, it's sort of interesting to talk about it in, in regard to yield, right? So like in a monoculture, you sort of, which is a system that's highly extractive and you're basically looking at, at human beings in relation to sort of one plant or one animal in a spot and you're trying to extract a yield in a single channel, you know? And so, so a good example would be of Napa, you know, right. You're where the only thing they're doing is addressing making that grape grow right. as best as it can right. with disregard to everything. You optimize yield and quality for that grape on that site so that you can ter commodify that as a wine that intend that then has, you know, such and such commercial value, right? And instead, if you look at yield as being all the possible sort of effects that can emerge on the site for every sort of being. So it like takes into account the health of every life form. It takes into account um, beauty and nutrients and um, everything right and you're, and so if you like i think permaculture is a is a way of of sort of organizing all this complexity so that you can sort of make the most out of these systems and i think what's interesting is you know when you said you've been at high you 10 11 years and you just started making wine in 17 um it just goes to show release, that the, release the first the whole, one. The, release. The whole objective is, you know, the commitment to permaculture is just something that, you know, 
gets bigger and better every year, you know, versus a monocultural, you know, way of farming or whatever. True. It's a, just a totally different just way of, of looking at place and time and, and what happens there. You know, and for us, we're just really not, we're really not looking at, um, you're really looking at, at life and sort of collect and sort of connecting all these different life forms. And then, and sort of allowing a certain kind of energy and health and beauty to emerge from those relationships over time. I mean, it sounds like really woo woo and out there, like sort of all these things, but it's, um, it's a really different yeah, way of constructing yeah, your life and being on a place. I don't know. So let's talk about that, um, how it relates to the wine. You know, we'll get into a little more. I mean, you're 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 making wine, you're growing vines, but you know, permacultural setup is you know a lot more animals and fruits and vegetables. But as far as the wine, you're not following the typical approach to growing grapes and even winemaking. You know, I keep asking you to describe things so people can visualize your your um, your wine vines it's not what people expect it's part of that whole biodiverse you know environment that you have um you're you know describe to me you're growing all kinds of grapes they're not necessarily separated you know give people an idea of that yeah and so you know it's designed as sort of a uh, sort of perennial, like permanent system. So there's there's no mowing and there's no tilling, and so all the all the other plants in the vineyard, sort of outside the vines, are just allowed. They're allowed to basically grow freely, go to flower, set seed, and then just decay naturally in the field. So they're so they're never cut, and there's never any um, you know sort of working of the soil with an implement. Um, and we use animals instead to sort of are sort of the main thing that's interacting with those other plants. So in the vineyard, there are pigs, cows, chickens, geese, and ducks. Um, and the pigs are sort of the most interesting ones to talk about and sort of how they sort of impact the vineyard. And so there's they're American guinea hogs, and so they're a heritage breed from the south. They're small, black. Um, and they really gentle, sweet temperaments and they like to, they don't root very deeply or very aggressively. So they do sort of shallow rooting and then they'll also eat clovers and grasses and other legumes that are sort of growing on the site. And they're the main, wow, basically they sort of create opportunities, right? And so what we'll often do is we'll we're constantly broadcasting seeds onto the site to sort of like feed the, the seed bank. And so we'll feed, we'll see this mix of like 40 different, um, 40 some odd different plants um, directly into onto the surface of the soil sort of without, you know, we don't, we don't use a seed drill. They're not sort of put into the soil. They're just sort of broadcast into the air but the pigs sort of create these opportunities for those seeds to germinate that, you know, might not exist um, like sort of otherwise and allow us to, yeah, just sort of create opportunities for sort of more diversity to develop in terms of what's growing in the, in the, in the sort of undestroying themselves. The pigs are also bringing, you know, they're bringing fertility. Um, and it's hard to describe. And, and they sort of set in motion this, this is sort of cascade of life that's sort of set in motion by their sort of involvement and by allowing all these other plants to grow uninterrupted. Um, and so. 
but do you plant do you plant grapes and vines that way or it's a little more no, so it's interesting so the site was originally planted to pinot noir pinot gris vertstamino tempranillo chardonnay and then we've been basically grafting on top of those vines just change what was planted and and so for us it didn't make a lot of sense to be pursuing all this to you know, we've been trying to have, you know, as many animals and as many plants growing symbiotically on the site as possible. And so it didn't make a lot of sense just to have, to us, to have just sort of single grape varieties growing. And so we use grafting to change what grapes you're working with. And so we basically have grafted field blends on top of the Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris, et cetera, that was growing on the site. So instead of planting just so people know, instead of planting new vines, you would take the existing vines, like a Pinot, graft it, and put another varietal on it, right? On the graft? Correct. And and, and so what we did is we basically, the farm, the 14 acres is divided up into like half an acre and like one acre parcels. And every single one of those parcels, we grafted to a unique co-plantation or field blend that was based on a different moment in the Jet and X. Wasn't, wasn't some of that like historical? Correct. Like and ancient. so what we do is, so growing grapes in monoculture is a pretty recent phenomenon. It's like, it's not really the natural way, you know, for, you know, for vines. Um, like if you were looking at sort of European vine growing, it's a, this is not the natural way for it to sort of exist. And so, normally if you had looked at a particular part you know of europe historically there would have been a whole family of grapevines genetically related that would have been grown in a spot and they often would have been grown mixed together in a field you know so if you looked at something really simple like burgundy for instance right like it wouldn't just be Pinot Noir. There would be Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris and Pinot Blanc and Aligote mixed together in a field. So if you looked at Corton Charlemagne in like, you know, the 1500s, it would have looked really different than it looks today. And the planting style would have been very different. And, and so we used what we imagined some of those historical field blends would have looked like. We used that as like a creative, like jumping off place to like, to kind of create these new field blends. And so we would look at one of these half an acre to acre parcels and acquire basically graft sticks, like, you know, vine material for grafting that, that sort of resembled, you know, what one of those spots were, would have looked like. And so for instance, there's a parcel called Crataegus and we took all of Syrah used to be grown further into the Alps than it is today. And many of the great varieties on both the Italian and French side of the border are genetically descended from it. So like Lagrine, Turaldigo, Mondouze, Viognier, for instance, are all genetically related to Syrah, even though they're on different sides, you know, of the Alps, they sort of came. And so we, Crataegus is basically all of Syrah's genetic descendants interplanted on a half acre parcel. And then we make a wine from that. So you will harvest that parcel and that parcel will be vinted into a wine. You won't necessarily add or other parcels. Or Correct. Take out of that. When we do that, the grapes are, before grafting, we mix up the sticks. And so they're planted totally at random. And they're two sticks, it's whip grafting. They're two sticks grafted onto each vine. And so what happens is that we can actually have two different grape varieties on each side of the vine and it's totally random. And so you can have, you know, Syrah and Viognier or Terraldigo and Roussan on the same plant. And yeah, it's all mixed together. So fermented. Now, does that protect you when you have parcels with multiple varietals? Um, does that protect you from, you know, weather, uh, you know, and the variations that you normally see in vintage. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot more resilience. And so, so there's about, there's 112 varieties at high U now, um, roughly. Um, 
But what that means is that if, I mean, different plants excel every single year. And even so, even if we're looking out in the field in a given year, there's certain years where we'll see like a lot of wild lettuce out in the field. And other years, like this in this past year, the yarrow was just grew like crazy, but the vines are the same way. Like, you know, in some years, all the verdello might succumb to powdery mildew or, you know, there can be heat in a certain moment after veraison that can cause a lot of problems for Pinot Noir. And by having so many different grape varieties, it really spreads out the risk so that from year to year, there are always going to be some things that are doing amazing, you know, a set of things are struggling and a set of things are sort of in the middle. But the overall effect is, is more one of continuity and we never have these sort of catastrophic. And so say with like the recent, with the fires, for instance, um, different grape varieties transmit the phenols that they're absorbing from smoke in different ways. Um, and, and certain grape varieties are more, more susceptible than others or sort of show it in a way that is, you know, that is more problematic. And so by having all these different grape varieties in an event, like a big fire, um, you have some diversity risk of us losing a harvest to like those kind of events. So if, if you take, you know, the smoke taint away and you're just looking at a normal harvest, you will bring in that plot Will you will you use everything? I mean, some grapes may be a little more ripe than others. Some may be less ripe. Some may have both. You, you don't you don't pull out or sight separate. So this is one of those things. Like we've been for so long, for so long, maybe past twenty five years, something like that. There's been a part of the conversation that sort of it sounds like this that that we want all the grape we want all the grapes in the field to ripen at the same time and we want and that it's really important for there to be sort of a homogenous must um, you know based on grapes that you know and and we've got and, we, and people went to great lengths to achieve this in terms of like. Um, yeah, evening out vigor in the canopy and selecting for, you know, particular clonal material, doing different things with watering and like sort of all those things. And then sort of more things in the cellar, like sorting, like sort of, et cetera. I think it makes wines boring um, because, and it makes them less, and it definitely makes them less complex, right? Because you just have, it sort of creates this phenomenon where, textures are really monotonous and and you kind of just have one note in the wine it takes away a lot of the complexity like a lot of what makes if you think about an old vineyard a lot of what makes an old vineyard interesting is all the disease that has accumulated in the vineyard and all the genetic adaptation of those vines to the site but when you look at this one of these old vineyards all the vines are different they all have like a really unique characteristic and that's what creates the complexity and intensity that we associate with sort of old vine wines. That same complexity and intensity can be replicated if we use a lot of clonal material and if we use different grape varieties. And you end up with must, you end up with wines that can be, they can be both bright and full of life and rich at the same time. They can have fruity aromas and green aromas and floral aromas and spice aromas um, in much higher flavor densities than is possible with just a single thing. Um, And so it's just one of these, there's so many like persistent like assumptions about the way the world works that just aren't true. (laughs) They just sort of suit people working in a particular model, it sort of suited them to mark in that way to sort of sell their thing, but they're not true. Um, And so this is just one of many areas um, in which, you know, people just sort of say, oh yeah, like field blends, like that's a problem because everything's going to ripen, you know, at a different time. That's not a problem. It's an advantage. (laughs) Um, Right. 
It's the exact opposite of what you think. It makes opposite. things more yeah. interesting and complex. Yeah. And, and so, and so if you look at like sorting, right? Like people, we sort of assume that as human beings that we can sort, that when we sort grapes, we make them better. What if that's not the case? What if we make them worse, right? And and so it's sort of looking at, um, I remember talking to John Kongsgaard about this, um, you know, Kongsgaard, they don't sort, right? They just sort of like, you know, they sort of sit there as so the grapes pass through the line. They might remove some leaves here and there, but like they're in general letting things fall through. Um, if you watch people on the sorting line, like human beings, like it's pretty like arbitrary and you're not tasting everything that you pull off the table and you don't know what the impact of that, of removing that flavor is. And so we choose to just let everything go through and at the end of the day, again, you're, you're allowing more of the, of what was out there in the field to sort of shine through. So you're getting a true, true expression of what existed. But again, oftentimes it's the, you know, it's interesting, like, you know, plants have a physiological response to stress. You know, and the, a lot of the result of that physiological response is increase is an increase of intensity. So with you know with apples, for instance, unsprayed apples versus sprayed apples. With unsprayed apples, you get uh, oh, how do I say? So my mind is I'm losing the the word for oh my gosh. Um, I mean, does it change the physiology? Is it is it more relaxed or you know less? You know, with unsprayed apples, you'll get a lot of sort of these sort of cosmetic flaws, but the apples taste like far more intense. Like you can look at apples like that are, you know, excessively sprayed and they don't, um, just don't develop in the same way with the same thing with grapes. Like often if you taste grapes that are impacted with powdery mildew, for instance, and the mildew hasn't cracked open the berries, but it's caused um, just some scarring. You'll often notice that if you taste those grapes, those grapes actually taste more intense, like they're more flavorful. Um, and so there's just a lot of instances where when we take the ugly thing away, you know, we're taking away flavor. People are conditioned to, you know, a good looking apple sometimes more than a good tasting. Nate, Nate we have to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, I want to follow up on a bunch of things with you. We're talking to Nate Reddy. Nate is the proprietor of Hayu Farm um, in Oregon. Um, we'll be right back. You're listening to The Great Nation. I've been telling you about wine access for weeks now. Our show is all about drinking good wines, and these guys give you great access to some of the best wines. They make it so easy for everyone to order the most delicious wines from around the world. Whether you're a beginner or whether you're a big collector, Wine Access's team of experts taste over 20,000 bottles annually, curating everything from renowned to under-the-radar winemakers. They also have the rare and hard-to-find bottles you've been looking for. Just go on the site and spend a few minutes and uh, see if you could find something. Besides buying the best wines, you will also learn about each wine because Wine Access tells you the story behind the wines, helping you understand and appreciate what makes each bottle special. Check Wine Access out today for your new favorite bottle. Here's an exclusive offer just for the Grape Nation listeners, 20% off your first order. But to get this offer, visit our special URL, wineaccess.com slash grape nation. That's wineaccess.com slash grape nation for your 20% off discount on your first order. You can't go wrong with any bottle because if Wine Access fails to impress, Wine Access will credit the bottle. No questions asked. Go to wineaccess.com slash grape nation. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Nate Reddy. 
uh, Nate Reddy from Hayu Farm in the Hood River region in Oregon, uh, making wine and farming in the Columbia River Gorge area. Um, one last question on what we were talking about before we broke. Is the climate challenging? Because you mentioned powdery mildew a few times, which means you have to deal with it. Because I know you farm organically. We don't. Bio <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you have to, are you, are you in a region where you ha have to fight against things that don't exist, let's say in a Napa or something? Yeah. I mean, it, like, so it depends on which part of the gorge, you know, and so there's parts, so that we farm a site on the Washington side of the river in the desert where there's five to 10 inches of rain a year. It's incredibly windy and the climate resembles the Canary Islands. And so on that, there's very little mildew pressure on our farm in Hood River. It's, um, you know, it's, you know, pre-alpine um, with, you know, fairly high rainfall. Um, and so, yeah, the, you know, the pressure is higher, but it, we also, I should say is, you know, we use a, our spray probing as probiotic. So we don't use a lot of the treatments that are common even in organic vineyards. So there's no sulfur sprayed. Um, we don't use paraffin oil, which is very common, which is petroleum-derived oil, which is really common as a mildew control. And so basically we have a spray program that's based on um, fermented teas that sort of creates microbial competition in the canopy. Um, do you buy that or do you make it? We, make, we, um, we, we buy some of it and we make some of it. Um, so we, we basically buy the food. So the tea is based on, um, so there's a, an orchardist in Vermont called Michael Phillips, and he has a book called Holistic Orchard Management. And in that book and on his website, there's a recipe for a tea. And it's based on organic cold-pressed neem oil. And then to that, you add fish meal, kelp, um, biochar. And then you basically create a tea that's fermented and it can be based on, it can be a compost tea. It can be based on um, whatever green material is of the moment. So it can be, you know, nettles or horsetail or comfrey. Um, but it's really a more of a medium for fermentation, for developing a certain like microbe count. And then you spray that tea with that sort of food or fuel into the canopy. And, and those microbes begin and begin to colonize the canopy. And the idea is that it sort of, you take up all the niches so that one thing can't be dominant. And what it means is that you, you, instead of trying to eradicate or kind of create an antiseptic environment where nothing is living in your canopy, but there's no disease. You basically try to create a very ab abundant life in your canopy. And so what that means is that, yeah, you get, you have, we have more powdery mildew than is probably common in a normal vineyard. And we're totally fine with that. Like we've been making wine like this since 12. We have a, like a high level of comfort in regard to it. Um, and every year we sort of push it a little bit more. So you're fighting it off, but you're not getting rid of it. We're not fighting it. <laughs> well, yeah, I got to choose my words carefully because that's exactly, you know, I, I totally understand the mistake I made. When you're treating it, yeah. you're not treating it to get rid of it. You're just trying to. So this is about all, this sort of all the life form stuff, right? And it happens in the cellar and in the winery. And so the same thing happens in the cellar with, you know, you can have a lot of cellar cleaning protocols, sulfur regimes, um, and other things that are sort of based around, you know, eradicating like different yeast and spoilage organisms in the cellar. And ultimately, I think that's counterproductive to sort of to complexity and counterproductive to building a stable and diverse microbial environment in the cellar um, that's based more on promoting life than eradicating it. Um, and so we sort of operate both in the field and the cellar in the same way in that we're really more interested in, in the way these environments 
a microbe sort of stabilize and fungal matter and all sorts of over the long term than sort of making short term decisions that ultimately sort of short circuit. Um, well, I, one of the things I noticed is in the cellar, obviously minimal practices, low intervention, but you only use water to clean. You know the way a lot of wineries just go nuts to get things clean. You use water, which will clean everything, but it'll leave some bacteria or whatever behind, which is fine, right? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think that everything everything has an influence. Like everything, there's nothing that you do that that isn't felt in like sort of some way. And I think that with a lot of the... Um, sanitation practices, I think that a lot of those cleaning products are getting into the wine and they're, um, so I think there's a problem insofar as those, a lot of like those microbes and things like Brett are a big part of what makes wine wine. They're, they're a big part of where complexity comes from. They're a huge part of the process. And I think that it's problematic to take them out of the conversation I think that's one level in which sort of the, that sort of cleaning can be problematic. But I think like the other, the other side of it is I think that a lot of that stuff, there's a risk, not only risk, I mean that, whatever. So it's like pretty typical to use like, um, you know, a high pH cleaner, like TSP in, in tandem with, citric acid you know as a series of baths to sort of like clean material in a winery and i think that stuff's getting into your wine like yeah, it just I, I, I agree and you know people, people obsess over cleanliness but they don't realize you know the effect it's a little and I, thing and i think you can feel it and i think you can taste it in the wine um and i would just Really so I, I wouldn't ask anyone else this question. You, you're, I interrupted you, but you're sort of leading into it. The question sort of is, in the end, what makes a wine taste like a wine? And I think you and I have discussed many elements of that. I think, you know, how you clean, you know, when you talked about spraying an apple, you know, the difference may be cosmetic, but the taste is night and day. Um, you know, your lifestyle may affect your fruits, you know, and vines. Um, is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that so much of this is like this idea versus like organic versus inorganic complexity. And I think that for a long period of time, we've been really fixated on, on the inorganic sort of elements in the winemaking process. And I think when you begin to pay attention to all the organic parts of the winemaking process and all the different life forms that sort of, in, so the, if you think about the vineyard and you think about a vineyard that's filled with all kinds of different plants and animals versus a vineyard in which there are only vines and dirt. There's, it's just simply true that there's just way more complexity present in the field with more life forms. There are more things. And those things are interacting in so many different ways. And I believe that you can feel that and taste that. And that it makes the like the world a more beautiful and resilient place. And I feel like every single time you take actions to sort of simplify things by eliminating niches that other life forms can occupy that that you're both creating less beauty the less potential for beauty and complexity um but you're also potentially removing something the, from the world that you might need later um and so i think a lot of it really comes to that and, and like listen i think that there's this huge like sort of ethical component um, that comes up when discussing wines. It's one of the most important and it's one of the most remarkable parts of wine, you know, and part of that is, is about what are the practices that 
sort of underlying the creation of the wine. But part of it is also about the way in which we taste wine. Um, and what I mean by that is that is that we can learn. Human beings are really remarkable in our way to, to learn to appreciate things, like things that were, that we didn't like or we thought were ugly or repugnant. We can learn to love them, right? And this is something new and there's something, and this is a really important part of the wine experience, like, and a very common one. And so it's, I think that for most people, when they first encountered um, wow, a sort of a really deep, intense, or traditionally made wine, that the first response reaction to that is kind of like, like, oh, like that's disgusting. I can't drink that. I hate that. Or and then it's amazing how over time we remember that experience of, of sort of not liking this thing. And then, and we sort of become fixated on that in this way in which we, we sort of, we sort of keep coming back to those experiences and we work on them and we, and we sort of learn to find pleasure in those things. And there's something about that learning process of learning to appreciate that sort of thing where, where we found something challenging and there was something, there was something difficult about that challenge, but also something intriguing. And there's something about working our way through those taste experiences so that we can find pleasure from that. That is, I think it's sort of deeply ethically important thing that we can learn from the wine drinking experience. And so I think asking ourselves these questions of where does our food come from and, and how is it being grown and what sort of growing practices are best for the other living beings in the world? You know, what, what practices are best for people working in the fields? What practices are best for you know, other animals that sort of interact with that environment. Right. And what, are those, what does that taste like? And how do we learn how to create beautiful and compelling experiences from those tastes? I think asking those questions and going through that experience is incredibly important. I, I agree. Um, and, you know, coming from you, you know, as a practitioner, um, you've been on the farm for a decade now. Just tell me, you know, we don't have much time left. Tell me, and we talked about it a little, but how the landscape where you are has literally changed, you know, what you learned during the tenure. And, you know, you said everything is so ever-changing. You know, what do you see there in the future? You know, it's this big living, you know, thing. So 10 years behind you, you're living in the present. What do you see in the future? Yeah, our big thing for the future is is working with water and planting more forests. And so we've done what we can without making sort of major changes to the landscape. And it's important to understand that the the land that we came into was a farm you know, has been a farm since the late 1800s. And, and it was, and so the land's already been heavily manipulated by human presence. So I wouldn't advocate a lot of this stuff for like pristine environments, but it's also important to note, there's not a lot of pristine land sort of left in the world. Um, but so for a site like ours, you know, there was a lot of land shaping went on, a lot of drain tiling was installed. Um, a lot of flattening of the surfaces. And so the, the big next step for us is to, we're going to be installing a series of terraces that will act to sort of reconnect the different water sources on the site. And we'll be building a bunch of 
basically ponds that are connected to those terraces and then using those terraces to grow forest and like connect wildlife corridors. Um, so we're, so there's forest on our property right now. There's very little forest in the Hood River Valley, which is, so it's an, it's a commercial orchard growing valley. Um, and much of the forest was, was taken away. And a lot of the water that would originally existed here was sort of was diverted and sort of tiled out. So you don't see a lot of ponds and you don't see a lot of creeks. And, and so what we're working on doing is basically kind of creating these forest water terraces that connect to existing waterways and forests on the perimeter of our property and kind of using that to expand them. Um, and then building ponds, both these things with the idea of, so typically with vineyards and orchards, people tile all the water out and then they replace it with irrigation. And so what That's crazy, on, which is crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so what we're working on doing is doing a series of um, sort of creating this landscape that will sort of spread water across the site evenly and work on replacing water within the aquifer. Um, and in the hope of sort of retaining water on the site, and spreading it out more evenly, really using that as a way to amplify life rather than um, subliminate it, basically. And I think that was like a big effect of like a lot of, again, that water stuff was about what we talked about earlier. It allowed you to sort of target water towards the things that you wanted to grow, but deprive other things from having access to it. Um, and I think a lot of the problems, you know, that we're seeing in the West right now with fires and drought originate um, from this sort of mindset and these kind of practices. And so we're trying, you know, to do this on our site, um, not only as a way to, yeah, sort of amplify the things that we're already working on in this regard, but also to like, to be able to act as a model so that we can sort of show people what happens when you do this sort of thing. So it's like, this is this, yeah, really epic, crucial. It sounds, um, it sounds ambitious, but it sounds great. Nate, we got to end the show. We blew through an hour. Um, a couple of things. Um, I usually do a thing called the wine list where I ask my guests, you know, their wine preferences. It's fun. I do it with every guest. What I'm going to do is I'm going to send you off air the wine list. And I just want you to take a few minutes to answer it. And then I'll post it on social media, like I've done with past guests. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is I want to thank you for coming on. I got to do a quick wrap up and then I want to just get some info from you. Um, so if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the great nation.com. That's Sam at the great nation.com. Please subscribe to the Great Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at the Great Nation. On Instagram, we're at S Ben Ruby. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. But you can always use the hashtag the Great Nation on both. Um, if I can get Nate to answer my wine list, I'll post it on our social media sites. Nate, if you didn't intrigue the shit out of my listeners, um, I don't know what will. So if they want to get more information, it, intrigue and educate, um, all in a good way. I mean, if people want to find out more, get more information on what you're doing, look into the wines, what's the best place for them to go? <laughs> I would say I, come like, uh, arm. <laughs> no, I know. You, you know, we didn't even get into, you know, you were a hospitality, you know, hospitality guy. China's a great cook. You brought in a chef, you know, you do tastings. But if people want to, you know, when I've been on the site a million times and, you know, that's where you learn from that is the best thing to go to Hayu Farm, you know, uh, the website. Yeah, I mean, I think that. So, so we post a lot of information on Instagram, actually. So, China's okay. Instagram feed is at Stellagraphia. Spell. S-T-E-L-L-A-G-R-A-P-H-I-A. Okay, that's China. That's Nate Yeah, Cardinal. and that's actually one of, the, one of the best places to really immerse yourself in a lot of the nitty-gritty sort of farming and food okay. details. 
Um, and then on the, just the high wine farm, Instagram, um, we post a fair amount of content as well. And, um, that's probably the, you know, the best place to sort of, to sort of look at that. All right, Nate, we got to jump. I could sit here for 10 hours and talk to you about any one subject, but I got to squeeze it into an hour. I want to thank our guest, Nate Reddy. Nate is the proprietor of Hayu Farm. Um, thank you to our engineer, Amanda, and everyone at Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Great Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.